It's a beautiful day. Spend it right here with Yesterday USA Superstation. This is Fred Foy. Join us now as we travel back in time and relive some of the magic that was part of the golden age of radio. It's time now for another episode of The Glowing Dial, here on Yesterday USA. And now the hosts of The Glowing Dial... Big John and Steve. Well, thank you very much, Fred Foy, and hello, everybody. Welcome to The Glowing Dial here on Yesterday USA. My God, it's been a long time since uh, Steve and I have said that. Uh, we are really glad to be uh, to be heard on Yesterday USA once again, and we want to thank uh, Kim Bragg for uh, making that happen for us. As you well know by now, Bill Bragg, the founder of Yesterday USA, and our, our good friend and mentor has passed away. And I think one of, that's one of the reasons Kimmy said, uh, would you do some fill-in shows for us? It's one of the ways we can help out the station. And you can help out Yesterday USA as well, and we will tell you how to do that in a little while. And throughout the program, actually. Um, so I'm Big John. And you remember me from uh, 18 years ago, the last time we were heard on YUSA, pretty much. Steve Archiver-Bannock over there. Hi, John. Hi, Steve. Hi, John. Yes, we are back with you. And believe it or not, we still, after all this time, have that silly chemistry. And the glowing dial has <laughs> been uh, pretty much uh, out there since we left YUSA. And uh, in, in the form of a podcast uh, off our main page, glowingdial.com. And uh, through uh, Jerry Handiga's Old Time Radio Network. And for a while there, we were with Corey Harker's Stay Tuned America. Corey tells me that he has some plans to, uh, to get Stay Tuned America back up again. And if so, we always have a home there. So that's, that's nice to know. Anyway, we're available several other places uh, in our three-hour podcast uh, edition. These episodes for Yesterday USA are going to be a little more exclusive. We're not just going to take an hour from our podcast and re-edit it and send it over to uh, to YUSA. No, no we're no, doing no. We're, we're doing, doing special shows just for you guys. A new show just for you, SU, YUSA folks. Yes. For you, SU. <laughs> That's y my initials, SU. You were, you were almost spoonerizing the, the uh, ASUY. Yeah. Uh, Asui. My initials are SU. Chop so Asui. SU is very oh, important yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we have some great shows uh, uh, lined up for you. Kim is going to uh, play them as uh, fill-in shows for now. And we don't know when these are going to go out, so we can't be terribly uh, topical as far as holidays and celebrity birthdays. If you want that stuff, listen to our podcast. But um, we have some good stuff uh, lined up for you here. We have an episode of the Lux Radio Theater. We have a Screen Director's Playhouse. And we have an episode of Strange. Oh, that was good. In stereo yet. Huh. <laughs> In stereo mono. <laughs> okay, well, tell you what, we have to get on to things. We don't have near as much time to do talking uh, in this edition of the program as we usually do uh, with our podcast. So let's get right into things. Uh, we have an episode of the Lux Radio Theater. It's their adaptation of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, an excellent film. 
Um, this is from Monday, December 1, 1947. Originally over CBS, sponsored by Lux Soap Flakes. And in the cast, we have Charles Boyer, Madeline Carroll, Bill Johnstone, one of the shadows, Regina Wallace, Carl Marburg, Anne Whitfield, Alvina Temple, Gloria Gordon, Eileen Erskine, Ramsey Hill, William Keeley, uh, the director is uh, the host, John Milton Kennedy is our announcer. Now, Steve, you have a little bit of information to impart about the Lux Radio yes, Theater. Yes, the Lux Radio Theater, sponsored by Lux Soap Flakes, ran on the Blue Network from 1934 to 1935, then made the switch to CBS for a long run until 1954, 19 years there. The show moved back to NBC for a final run from 1954 to 55. Hosts over the years included Cecil B. DeMille, William Keeley, and Irving Cummings. As many as four big-name celebrities would be on each episode performing radio versions of popular Hollywood films of the day. The series also had life on television as the Lux Video Theater, which ran from 1950 to 1957 on CBS and NBC. Some of the favorites include The Day the Earth Stood Still with Michael Rennie and The War of the Worlds with Dana Andrews. All right. Thank you, Steve. And it is time to get into this program, and we do that via our miraculous radio that just seems to know what we want to tune in and listen to. It does it for us. It tunes in broadcasts in the past. We had a contest years ago on Yesterday USA to name the radio, and we ended up calling it the McGee Machine because we got the idea from Fibber McGee. More about the origin of the McGee Machine in an upcoming uh, fill-in program here on Yesterday USA. So uh, make sure you uh, you check the program guide for that. Hopefully, uh, Kimmy will announce uh, when these are, are being played. Or you may just come across them. Either way, it is great to be back on YUSA, even as a fill-in show. So Steve and I are delighted there. Now, Steve, you're going to reach for the McGee machine. I certainly we will am. Tune this episode That's in. the only way to bring the shows to the uh, listeners here is to flick these levers and dials on the McGee machine. And there it is. All right, folks, sit back, close your eyes, and remember the Lux Radio Theater. This is the Ghost and Mrs. Muir from Monday, December 1st, 1947, originally over CBS. Lux presents Hollywood. Lieber Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Flakes, bring you the Lux Radio Theater, starring Charles Boyer and Madeline Carroll in The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. William Keeley. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. In the December Reader's Digest, you may have been interested to read, as I was, of the current revival of ghosts in England. Unlike most Americans, the English tend not only to believe in ghosts, but to cherish them as an indispensable part of British life. Tonight, we ourselves present a very fascinating spirit in 20th Century Fox's screen success, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Our stars in this unusual romantic drama are Charles Boyer and lovely Madeline Carroll. 
Madeline making her first Hollywood appearance since her distinguished record overseas. While people say that seeing is believing, I'm not quite sure that that applies to ghosts. Truly, you uh, generally can't see them, but you can often trace the results they have on people's lives, as in our play tonight. In the same way, you can't see the qualities in Lux Flakes, but you can certainly see the results, both in the way Lux keeps those precious fabrics looking lovely longer, and also the way it brightens the lives of busy housewives everywhere. On to the first act of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, starring Charles Boyer as Captain Gregg and Madeline Carroll as Lucy Muir. Some 50 years ago in London, a young and handsome widow, Lucy Muir, left the home of the mother and sister of her departed husband and boarded a train. With her went her small daughter, Anna and a servant named Martha. There, the little one's asleep now, Mum. Maybe now you can tell me where we're going. You've been very patient with me, Martha. I suppose we are running away. I can't say I blame you, Mum. Nagging at you morning till night, telling you what you could do and what you couldn't do. Sinful it was, Mum. That will be enough, Martha. Yes, Mum. We're going to a village called Whitecliffe. Whitecliffe by the sea. You've taken a house there, Mum? I've been in touch with a leasing agent, a Mr. Coombs. He has several houses for rent. There must be one we can afford. At least we'll be by ourselves. Well, good for you, Mum. Good for you. We should be there soon. We'll stay at the inn till Mr. Coombs finds the house we want. Yes, Mum. Oh, Martha, I know I'm doing right. I know. <laughs> say, Mrs. Muir, that you'll find no better home in Whitecliffe than Laburnum Mount. It's newly built, it's near the village, but and it's... But I can't understand why you won't show me Gull Cottage. The description in your file is most intriguing. Oh, believe me, madam, Gull Cottage wouldn't suit you at all. I suppose there's something wrong with it. Is it the drains? Well, I put up a house for rent, Mrs. Muir. You may be sure there's nothing wrong with the drains. Then why shouldn't it suit me? Oh, will you kindly allow me to be the judge of that? Now about but this... But if I'm going to live in the house, I should be the judge, Mr. Coombs. I'm sure there's another agency in Whitecliffe. Perhaps they have Gull Cottage listed also. Very well, Mrs. Muir. Come, I'll show you Gull Cottage. Well, you wanted to see Gull Cottage, and I've shown you Gull Cottage. Now we can leave and... But it's and... lovely, and so close to the ocean. And so far from a neighbour. I can't understand it. Why should a house like this remain empty? Well, it's been without a tenant for four years. Of course, it's terribly dusty, but... <gasps> Mrs. Muir! Who, who's that in there? There in... Oh, it's a portrait. A portrait on the wall. Oh, oh, that. <laughs> yes, the former owner, uh, Captain Gregg. The room's so dark for a moment I thought it was someone real. Well, a sea captain. That explains the scheme of decoration, doesn't it? Uh, which is all in frightful taste. Oh, it's a delightful room. Mrs. Muir, I assure you this house will not suit you at all. Nevertheless, I shall go upstairs. But, but, but there are only three rooms upstairs. They're all bedrooms. The main bedroom, oh, it's quite ugly. It's drafty. It's full of... Oh, well, see for yourself, then. Why, it's charming. And a balcony. A balcony overlooking the sea. But what's this? A telescope. Captain Greg, madam. He liked to watch the passing ships. As I shall too, Mr. Coombs. 
I suppose you have a reason for disliking this place so intensely, but I could become very fond of it. So... Mr. Coombs! Maybe now you know my reason. Well, you would come. I didn't want to show it to you, but oh no, you had to see it. Haunted. How perfectly fascinating. Well, eight times I've rented it and eight times the tenants have left after the very first night. What a pity, Mr. Coombs. That laughter, that was Captain Gray. It was indeed. But why does he haunt? Was he murdered? He committed suicide. I wonder why. Mr. Coombs, I've decided to take Girl Cottage. You what? It's so ridiculous. Ghosts, apparitions. Madam, with your own ears. But you heard him yourself. The wind in the chimney, Mr. Coombs. Please arrange for us to move in tomorrow. What time is it, Mama? Way past sleepy time, Anna, darling. No more stories tonight. Now off to sleep with you. I love it here, Mama. Our own house and our own ocean. Even the rain sounds different than the rain in London. <laughs> That's because we are so close to the sea, darling. You're not afraid of the storm, are you? <laughs> Why should I be afraid? Of course. We are snug and warm in our own little harbor. Good night, darling. All tucked in, is she, Mum? She'll be asleep in two minutes. Me too, Mum. Oh, your hot water bottle's downstairs, Mum, on the kitchen table. And the kettle's on the stove. Thank you, Martha. My, it's storming out there for fair, ain't it? I don't mind saying it's a bit scary like... Martha. A strange house and all, and not a soul in a mile of us. Oh, Oh, go to sleep, silly. I'll be up in a minute. Strange. Why should Martha turn out the kitchen light? You've got it, Kendall. Light it. <gasps> what nonsense is this now? Now I'm hearing voices like Mr. Coombs. What's the matter with these matches? It's not the matches, it's... Very well, Captain Greg. I know you're here. Are you afraid to speak up? Is that all you're good for, to, to, to frighten women? Well, I'm not afraid of you. Light the candle, light it. Well, how can I when you keep blowing out the matches? Light the blasted candle! Ah, that's better. Well? You, uh, you are Captain Gregg. Who the devil else would I be? I, I'm sorry I called you a coward. I, I didn't mean to embarrass you. Embarrass me? I mean, because of the way you died. What? The way I died, madam? Committing suicide. Who the devil said I committed suicide? Mr. Coombs said you Coombs did. is a fool. I went to sleep in front of that confounded gas heater in my bedroom. I'm a restless sleeper. I kicked the gas on with my foot. It was a stormy night, like this. So I shut my windows, as any sensible man would. Well, won't you? Yes, yes, I suppose so. Huh. Well, the coroner's jury said it was suicide because my blasted charwoman testified I'd always slept with my windows open. How the devil should she know how I slept? Oh, I'm so glad. Ah, you have a strange sense of humor, madam. I mean, because you didn't commit suicide. But if you didn't, why do you haunt? Because I have plans for my house. 
which do not include a pack of strangers making themselves at home. I think it's very childish of you frightening people. Well, in your case, I'll admit I, I chartered the course with regret. You're not a bad-looking woman, you know, especially when you are asleep. So you were in my room this afternoon while I was napping? My room, madam. And I thought I dreamed it all. But I knew I'd closed the window, and, and when I awoke, I found it open. I opened the window because I didn't want another accident with a blasted gas. I'm quite capable of taking care of myself. Good. And you will pack your gear and shove off tomorrow, preferably the first thing in the morning. I will not go. The house suits me perfectly. It's my house, madam. And I intend to turn it into a home for retired seamen. Then you should have said so in your will. I didn't leave a will. Why not? Because I did not expect to kick the blasted gas on with my blasted foot. I won't be shouted at. For one year I've been shouted at and ordered about, and, and I'm sick of it, you hear? Blast, blast, blast! <laughs> Temper. Or, or laughed at, either. I won't leave this house, I won't. No, no, believe that. Stop that blasted blubbering, madame, or... I love this house. Uh. I, I can't explain it. it. It was as if the house itself were welcoming me, asking me to rescue it from being so empty. You can't understand that, can you? All right, then I'm a silly woman, but that's the way I feel. So, you love the house. Well, I'll admit, that's a point. And you did not frighten like the others. That's a point, too. All right, you may stay here, madam, but uh, on trial. Oh, thank you, Captain Gray. No, no, keep your distance, woman. I'm sorry. You made me so happy. No I... intention of making you happy. I merely want to do what's best for the house. Then you'll go away and leave us alone? I will not go away. Why should I? Oh, because of my child. I don't want her frightened into fits. But I never frighten children into fits. But think of the bad language she'd learn. Oh, confounded madam, my language is most controlled. Well, Anna is much too young to see ghosts. Oh, very well. I'll make a bargain with you. Leave my bedroom as it is, and I'll promise not to go in any other room in the house. Then your brat and your servant need never know anything about me. But uh, if you keep the best bedroom, where should I sleep? In the best bedroom. But... Oh, in heaven's name, madam. I am a spirit. I have no body. I haven't had one in four years. Is that clear? But I can see you. No, no, no. All you see is an illusion, like a blasted lantern slide. Well, it's not very convincing, but I, I suppose it's all right. Uh, I always was a fool for a helpless woman. I am not helpless. Oh, well, if you're so confoundedly competent, you'll notice that your kettle is about to boil over. Oh, so it is. Thank you. Uh, one thing more. There is a portrait of me in the living room. I want it removed to the bedroom. Must I? It's a very poor painting. It's my painting. I did not invite your criticism. Well, I only meant it doesn't do you justice. It's all right, all right. Tend to your hot water bottles. <laughs> what a sorry substitute for... Good night, Captain. Uh, good night, good night, Mrs. Young. <laughs> Good afternoon. It's about time you came upstairs. Been waiting for hours. Why I agreed to see you only in this room? You'll talk to me like a gentleman, Captain Greg, or I'll go straight downstairs. Who the devil said you could chop down my tree out there? I ordered it chopped down. But hang it on, madam. I, I planted that tree with my own two hands. Think how much prettier your garden will look with a rose bed. I detest roses. I hope the whole blasted bed dies of blight. Captain Gregg, if you insist on haunting me, you might at least be more agreeable about it. Why should I be agreeable? Well, as long as we're living together... I mean, uh, if we're to be thrown together so much, life's too short to be forever barking at each other. <laughs> Your life may be short, madam, but uh, I have an unlimited time at my disposal. 
Then say something pleasant for a change. Well, that's uh, the pretty dress you have on. <laughs> Thank you. Much better than smothering yourself in all that black crepe. I happen to have been wearing mourning for my husband. Whom you didn't love. How dare you say that? Because it's true. You're jealous because no one put on any mourning for you. <laughs> that shows how little you know about it. Some poor misguided female, no doubt. Five poor misguided females, to be exact. <laughs> I should think you'd be ashamed instead of boasting about it. Why? They misguided themselves. Never raised a finger to help. Hmm, that's not what I've heard about sailors. Seamen! Confound it. Sailor. Sailor is a landlubber's word. Now, why did you marry him? Edwin? I, I don't really know. He seemed so romantic. Mm, but it was different afterwards, hmm? Did he beat you? Oh, no. Mm. Poor Edwin never really did anything. <laughs> he was an architect, but not a very good one, I'm afraid. He couldn't have designed a house like this. Who did design it? I did, of course. It reminds me of something. An old song or, or a poem. Magic casements opening on the foam of paler seas in fairy lands forlorn. Strange to find a sea captain quoting Keats. Oh, life can go slow at sea. Plenty of time for reading in the off-watches. How wonderful it must be. Reading lyric poetry up in the crow's nest. With a sheet ah. bellying in the wind. Sails, blasted old madam. A sheet is a line, a rope. Ropes can't belly. Well, I don't know anything about the sea except that it's romantic. That's what all landsmen think. Seamen know better. Then why do they go to sea? Oh, because they haven't got enough sense to stay home. Like those two women at the front door. What two women? Look out the window. Oh, <gasps> no. Huh? Who are they? My blasted in-laws. And Martha's sure to send them up here. Well, well, what do you want of me? Well, do something. Hide. Go away and decompose. Dematerialize, madam. Well, whatever it is, do it quickly. They're on the stairs. Oh, no fear. They can't hear or see me unless I choose that they should. Oh, then please don't choose. I'll get rid of them. Why don't you let me? You know, I've had considerable experience. No, you're not to do anything. Well, Lucy, talking to yourself. Oh, my poor Lucy. So pale, so fragile. Mother Muir, Eva, how nice of you to call. Martha said you were up here resting. Oh, how can you rest in such an ugly room? Lucy, poor, poor child. And what a hideous portrait on the wall. Uh, with a face like yours, madam, you'd be wise to shut up. <laughs> oh, no. Why on earth don't you take it down? Because uh, I like it, Eva. Liar. Well, of course, if you want a portrait of a strange man in your room, well, that's up to you. Oh, Lucy, we have such bad news. The gold chairs, your entire income. What about the gold chairs? They're worthless. The mine is closed down. No more dividends, Lucy. It was all in this morning's newspaper. Oh. So we've come to take you and Anna back home with us. Eva... Eva, you're sure of this? Of course. No, no, don't make a scene in front of these swabs. I don't intend to make a scene. Oh, of course you don't. You're my brave little girl. Please, Mother Muir. Make her stop that caterwauling, or by Judas, I will take a hand. You keep out of this. Lucy, how can you talk to me like that? Oh, blast. Eva, did you hear what she said? Yes, Mother, I heard. Now stop sniveling. But I didn't mean you. Then just whom did you mean? You're acting in a most peculiar fashion, Lucy. Obviously, this dreadful place has preyed on your mind. <laughs> Bats in your belfry. Pipe <laughs> down. What? I mean, I, I, I want to think. But why? With your income gone, you'll have to come home with us. Don't do it, Lucy. Do you want me to stay? Yes. Lucy, are you out of your mind? You really mean it? Of course I mean it. Lucy, Lucy. I'm sorry, Mother. It's very kind of you, but I'm going to stay. I'll manage somehow. 
So please be good enough to shove off. Shove off? She's insane. I, I want nothing more to do with her. Well, you don't have to push me, Mother. I'm going. Eva, I'm not pushing you. Stop it, Mother, please. But I'm not touching you, oh, Eva. Go. Oh, stop it. Captain Greg. Captain Greg. I'm out on the balcony. Are you? Well, I've had just about all of this. I'm going to stand. Stop talking in riddles. Two days ago, you shoved those poor women out of this house. <laughs> Squealing like a couple of pigs. That wasn't enough, was it? What do you mean by pushing Mr. Coombs down the stairs just now? I only hope that when I reach the afterlife, I'll have a little more dignity. Dignity? You call it dignified, throwing yourself at a herring-gutted swab like Coombs? I asked Mr. Coombs here because he's the logical man to help me find lodgers for the summer. So, lodgers? Oh! Oh, I made a mistake. Oh, forgive me, my dear. I thought you wanted to sign Coombs on for a husband. Mr. Coombs, that walrus? Well, it's my experience that women will do anything for money. And now you and your blasted experience have ruined everything. Why? I could not allow lodgers in any case. They're worse than passengers at sea. It's them or starved. Not at all. I've solved your problem. Madam, you're going to write a book. Book? Don't be ridiculous. It's all I can do to write a postcard. But I can write a book and you can put it down on paper for me. What sort of a book? The story of my life. Ride and Swash. Yes, Ride and Swash by, by Captain X. I don't think that's at all a nice title. It's not meant to be. It's meant to be sensational, like the subject. But it takes months to write a book. What are we to live on in the meantime? Well, you have a little jewelry. Pawn it. Oh, but I couldn't. Oh, blast your eyes, madam. Will you understand you're trying to claw off a leash or? You can't afford to be squeamish. I do understand, and, and, and don't swear at me. All right, then uh, be sensible. Now, since we're going to be collaborators, you may call me Daniel. That's very good of you. And I shall call you Lucia. My name is Lucy. No, no, it doesn't do you justice, my dear. Women named Lucy are always being imposed upon. But Lucia, ah, now, there is a name for an Amazon. For a queen. I don't feel much like a queen. I feel frightened and confused. Martha and I could always get along, but it's my baby. It's Anna. Well, don't you trust me? Oh, I do, Daniel, when I'm talking to you. But when you're not here, I... Well, it's, it's asking a great deal to expect anyone to entrust our whole future to someone who isn't real. But I am real, Lucia. I'm here because you believe I'm here. Keep on believing, and I'll always be real to you. Yes, Daniel. Now, get into town and pawn your blasted jewelry, and don't come back without a typewriter. Ah, yes, Blood and Swash by Captain X. two of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir will continue in a moment. Libby, have you any romantic tidbits for our audience tonight? Well, it's not a big name story, Mr. Kennedy, but a very unusual real wedding took place on the set of My Wild Irish Rose during the last week of shooting. Oh, who were the lucky people? Two of the dancers in this fabulous new musical of Warner Brothers. And just imagine, Andrea King was the matron of honor. She looked almost like a bride herself in hand-embroidered white batiste. It was one of the costumes she wears in the picture. And uh, the best man? Dennis Morgan. Well. Andrea's romantic leading man. 
In fact, the entire cast of my Wild Irish Rose came as guests, and they looked very colorful in their Celtic costumes. Did the bride wear something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue? Uh-huh, and Andrea saw to the new. She gave us some gossamer sheer nylons with embroidered clocks of tiny seed pearls. You mean to wear? Why, certainly. Andrea told her just to lux them, and they'd wear beautifully. And I'm sure that's true because lux flakes are so gentle, even the sheerest nylons last twice as long. You're absolutely right, Libby. Those famous strain tests proved it. Runs came sooner when stockings were washed with strong soap or rubbed with cake soap. All kinds of stockings, nylons, silk, rayon, and cotton, lasted twice as long when they were washed with lux flakes. That's just like getting an extra pair of stockings every time you buy a pair. And remember, girls, Lux Care prolongs the wear of everyday stockings as well as super shears. So lux them after every wearing. Luxed stockings last twice as long. We return you now to William Keeley. Act two of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, starring Charles Boyer as Captain Gregg and Madeline Carroll as Lucy. Summer has come to Whitecliff by the sea, but there's no clamor of lodgers in Gull Cottage. Instead, week after week, the constant clatter of a typewriter as the ghost of Captain Daniel Gregg dictates the vivid story of his life to Lucy Muir. Well, why have you stopped typing? You didn't finish the sentence. It's, it's that awful word, Daniel. It's a perfectly good word. I think it's a horrible word. It means what it says, doesn't it? All too clearly. Oh, hang it all, Lucia. If you're going to be prudish, we'll never get the book finished. Now, where was I? Upstairs. Oh, yes, yes. Um, the customs of Marseille are different to any... From any. Oh, who cares? This is not a blast literary epic. It is the unvarnished story of a seaman's life. It certainly is unvarnished. All right, all right. Smear on some varnish then, but uh, leave the guts in it. I think there should be a chapter about your boyhood, your school days. Never went to school. I was educated by the vicar. Poor man, you must have had a dreadful time. Oh, I suppose you were a model of all the virtues at 12. <laughs> Certainly I was, and Anna shall be the same. Anna is not fat, as you probably were. I wasn't fat, I was skinny. Still worse. Hair ribbons and a thousand freckles, probably. I notice you still have freckles. Very few, and I've been told they're quite becoming. Huh? Let me see. Hmm? Yeah, that... Uh, oh, good heavens, the time. Oh, I get some sleep. We'll put in a full day tomorrow. Oh, Lucia, you're sure you've said nothing about my being here? I mean, Martha knows nothing. Your little girl? Of course not. They know I'm busy writing a book, but that's all. You've been very thoughtful about keeping your promise not to... to disturb them. Madam, I'm a man of my word. And what words? <laughs> Daniel, what did your aunt do when you ran away to sea? Oh, Thank heaven, probably, that there was no one around to fill her house with mongrel dogs and track mud on her carpets. Did she write to you? Every Sunday, for seven years. I was at sea when she died. What are you thinking? How lonely she must have been, with her silent, empty house and her clean carpets. Good night, Lucia. with your dawdling, Lucia. But I'm so tired, Daniel. Oh, a sentence or two and the book is all finished. I can't see straight or think straight. You don't have to think. Just write this down. 
To all who follow the hard and honorable profession of the sea, to the afterguard, to masters, mates, and engineers, to able-bodied and ordinary seamen, to stokers, carpenters, sailmakers, and sea cooks, I dedicate this volume, The End. The End. <sighs> well, tomorrow you take it to the publishers. Why did you write the book, Daniel? It wasn't merely to save the house for me. Partly that, and partly to help people understand those poor devils who go to sea for want of a better sense. Well, now, about the publishers. You'll go to Tackett and Sproul in Gretzmith Street. Yes, Daniel. Now, be sure you see Sproul. <laughs> he once came in fourth in the yacht race, fancies himself a seafaring man. Daniel, I... Hmm? What's to become of us? You and me. Well, nothing's to become of me. <laughs> Everything's happened that can happen. Have you forgotten how many illusions? Such an earthy illusion. When we were writing the book, I was happy. But now, when I try to think of the future, it's, it's all dark and confused. Like that fog out there tonight. Oh, you've been working too hard. Cooped up in the house too long. But I love it here. Yes, but you should be out in the world, meeting people, seeing men. I have no desire to see men. Well, confound it, you should. You know, you're, you are a, a very attractive woman. You owe it to yourself. Yes, Daniel. Now, take the early train, Lucia. Take it and sprawl, Great Smith Street. <laughs> impossible, madam. You can't see Mr. Sproul without an appointment. But I have a manuscript here, and I'm sure he... A cookbook, he perhaps. Gardening. Another life of Byron. Oh, really, Mrs. Muir? Oh, well, I'll mail you a notice when Mr. Sproul can see you probably next month. Thank you. Surely you're not leaving, Mrs., um, Mrs. Muir? I have no appointment. Then you shall have mine. But, Mr. Fairley... Oh, it's all right, Albert. Just tell old Sproul I wouldn't wait. Well, aren't you going to thank me? It's very good of you, but, but I'm afraid I can't accept. You're a very beautiful creature. I can do no less than insist that you take my appointment. Mr. Sproul, we'll see Mr. Fairley, Albert. Well, Mrs. Muir, are you going in, or shall I carry you in? Really? Really? I don't know how you got in here, young woman, but this much I do know. I will not allow you to take up my time, and I will not review your manuscript. Shut up and sit down, you blessed grampus. Oh, dear. Madam! Are you a would-be author or a would-be ventriloquist? I... I don't know what you're talking about, Mr. Sproul. I distinctly heard... And such a nice-looking woman, too. Uh, Mr. Sproul, please. This book, it isn't what you think it is at all. It's... it's, uh, the unvarnished record of a sailor's... I mean, seaman's life. Seaman? What could you know about seaman? Oh, a great deal, believe me. Hmm. Unvarnished, you say? Shamefully so. Oh, dear me. Well, uh, well, perhaps I'll glance at it after all. Uh, sit down, young woman. Uh, sit down. Better take another walk, Mr. Fairley. She's still in there with Mr. Sproul. She must be starving. Oh, I fetched the material lunch some time ago. Hmm. I'll wait, Albert. I'll wait. Well, well, Mrs. Muir. This is quite a book. Thank you. You're not going to pretend that you wrote it. No. No, no, it's a man's book. And what a man. Captain X. <laughs> I'd like very much to meet him. Oh, I'm afraid that's impossible. He, uh, he's away. Oh, 
A voyage, of course. Yes, a very long voyage. Oh, bless my soul, what a story. Uh, we shall publish it, of course, Mrs. Muir. You just leave everything to me and uh, be happy that you know such a man. There aren't many like him these days. You appreciate that. I think I do, Mr. Sproul. And thank you very much. <laughs> Got so stuffy upstairs, I thought I'd wait for you down here. Mr. Fairley. Quite an appointment you had, wasn't it? But it's pouring now, and you haven't an umbrella. I'm quite capable of finding a cab. Oh, now, please. I deserve a minute, don't I? Mm. Dear me, I certainly didn't bargain for this blasted rain. As you said, you could find a cab. Ruin your hat, though, wouldn't it? Now, if you asked me nicely. Please. Would you mind? Ah, you're <laughs> smiling. I'll be right back. But why, why shouldn't I ride to the station with you? Perhaps I too must catch a train. I don't believe it. Really, Mr. Fairley, the sheer... Brass. The word you're looking for is brass. <laughs> exactly. Still, in a way, I should be grateful to you. You see, Mr. Sproul has agreed to publish my book. Mm, he always had a weakness for feminine literature. Well, this book might surprise you. It's surprising enough to find a lady author infinitely more exciting than her heroine could possibly be. I assume you also write, Mr. Fairley? Uh, yes. Uh, children's books. Forgive me, Mrs. Muir, but uh, I am Uncle Neddy. Uncle Neddy? Ridiculous, isn't it? Why, you're adored by half the children in the world. Oh, I loathe the little monsters. My little girl is not a monster. I shall make an exception, then. I look forward to meeting her, Mrs. Muir. Uh, your husband also. My husband is dead. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, what a liar I am. I'm not sorry at all. As a matter of fact, I'm... Uh, well, uh, uh, your book. Tell me about your book. <laughs> Uncle Nady. Ah, uh, by Godfrey, what a load of bilge. Daniel, so you've been eavesdropping. I thought he said he had to catch a train, too. I rather think he only wanted to ride to the station with me. The way he was smirking at you, like a cat at a fishmonger's. I found him rather charming. Rather charming? Now you're starting to talk like him. Well, how in blue blazes do you want me to talk? Has better. I think you're being extremely childish. You should have pushed him out of the cab. In another minute, I would have. Daniel, why, I believe you're jealous. Well, of course I'm not jealous. <laughs> Jealousy is a disease of the flesh. I haven't had any flesh for years. I've never known you to be more disagreeable. And today, of all days... Yes, Prowls bought the book. Yes, and now I can buy the house just as we planned. I'm not so sure I want you to have the house after all. I wish you'd stop this sulking. You said yourself that I... that I should see men. Yes, I said men, not a perfumed pencil pusher. Anyway, I... I shall never see him again. Uh, that's what you think. Where are you going? I'm disappearing. Always hated trains, anyway. I'll see you later, madam. Martha! Martha, where's Anna? She's in the orchard with Uncle Neddy. But I didn't expect him till tea time. Every day this week he's called. I can't be rude to him, Martha. I can. Hm. He's out there painting a picture. How exciting. Whenever you're ready, we'll have tea in the garden. Yes, ma'am. I like your little girl, Lucy. She's very wise. For instance, how did she ever guess I wanted to be alone with you? If you bribed her to go uh, away... Aren't I... you interested in what I was painting before? You're quite accomplished, aren't you? I should think being Uncle Neddy would satisfy anyone. No, I also paint. 
uh, under the name of Renoir. <laughs> oh, you're such a fool, Miles. <laughs> you know, that's quite the nicest thing you've ever said to me. And what, if anything, do you do as Miles Fairley? Specifically, I behave quite idiotically towards a young lady that I fell in love with in a publisher's office. Miles, please. Lucy, am I being unforgivably offensive? It's just that I'm... Well, I, I, I don't quite know what to say. Then say nothing. Take a look at this canvas. Why? It's me. You've been painting me in my, in my bathing costume. Mm-hmm. Every morning I've watched you and Anna on the beach. Not too bad, is it? Well, it's, it's very flattering, really. Oh, Lucy, darling, it would take a thousand Renoirs to... Oh, Lucy. You shouldn't have done that. You, you shouldn't have kissed me. Well, that was unforgivable, wasn't it? But I shall not go away, even if you send me. And I shall see you again, even though you forbid it. I'm sure I, I have no control over where you go or what you do. Then you won't forbid it. Miles, please. If you do want to see me, go away now. Yes, Lucy. If you want it, my darling. No wonder you wanted to plant a rose garden here. Daniel. Perfect setting to be kissed in. Oh, you've been spying on me again. No, merely happened to be haunting the vicinity. Why did you let him? I didn't. He, he took me unawares. Ah, now, when a woman is kissed, it's because she wishes to be kissed. That's nothing but masculine conceit. Well, now what happens? Miles Fairley is staying at the inn in the village as well you know. He'll either remain there or go away. It doesn't matter to me one way or the other. I think it matters more than you'll admit. Well, then why bother to ask me? You seem to know my mind better than I do. Ah, he puts brilliantine on his hair. Most men do. You can find an excuse for everything. Only because you're attacking him. I know, I know. It's a natural human reaction. Oh, I wish you wouldn't be so superior just because you're not alive. And he is. Yes, very much so. It's no crime to be alive. No. No, my dear. No. Only sometimes it's a, a great inconvenience. The living can be hurt. I don't intend to be hurt. But if I'm to go about in the world as you said, it, well, it will mean taking risks. And real happiness is worth almost any risk. Well, watch your soundings, Lucia. I will, Daniel. I only wish you... You alone in the garden, hmm? Oh, have some tea, Martha. But that's odd now. I swear I heard you talking. Is Uncle Nettie still about? No, he's gone. Mum, it's none of my business. But what's he up to? I rather think he's going to ask me to marry him. And you'd be willing to? I might. Why shouldn't I? Because he ain't good enough for you, that's why not. He's the kind of man no decent woman would associate with. Martha! I've got a right to my feelings, Mum, and I've got a feeling about him. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's just that I've been so worried about you lately, Mum. Don't worry, Martha. I know he isn't perfect, but... but he's real. Real? I thought I was impervious to emotion, but I'm not. I need companionship and laughter and... and all the things a woman needs. Well, I hope he can give them to you. I, I'll go fetch Animum. Excuse me. Well, Daniel? Haven't you anything to say? Oh. <coughs> The sea in the moonlight, Lucy, and a warm summer night. I could stay here forever, my darling. I've never felt like this before, Miles. Hmm. How do you feel? I don't know. 
like looking down from high up, all dizzy and, and unsure. You won't fall. I'll hold you. It isn't right. It can't be to feel like this. It is right, because you're happy. I should go back to the house. It's, it's Anna's bedtime. Oh, just this one night. Can't you pretend you've forgotten? Miles, what's wrong, darling? I'm jealous of a little girl. She's my daughter. I can't forget her. When you're with me, I want you to forget everyone else in the whole world. You're a magician. You make it seem all wrong to consider my duty. And only right that I... that I put my arms around you to be kissed. To be loved. Lucia, can you hear me? Mm. Mm, asleep, huh? I thought you were one woman with sense. But you're like all the rest of them. Lucia, wake up. I'm talking to you. Blast it all, I said it. But... Oh. No, sleep on, Lucia. Sleep. I should have known. You've made your choice, the only choice you could make. You've chosen life, and that is as it should be. Whatever the reckoning. That's why I must go away. I can't help you now. Lucia, listen to me. Listen, my dear. You've been dreaming. Even now, you are dreaming. Dreaming of a sea captain that haunted this house. Of talks you've had with him. Even a book you both wrote together. But you, you wrote the book, Lucia. You and no one else. A book you imagined from this house and from that portrait on the wall. Now, it's been a dream. And in the years to come, you'll remember it only as a dream. And it will die, as all dreams die, at waking. Ah, ah, but how you would have loved the North Cape and the fjords in the midnight sun, where the blue water rushes into green, the Falklands, where a southerly gale whips the whole sea white as snow. Ah, what we both have missed, Lucia, what we both have missed. Goodbye, Lucia. Goodbye, my darling. We pause now for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Before we bring you Act Three of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, I want to introduce a delightful young lady whom 20th Century Fox has recently added to his roster of young talent, Miss Jane Nye. In fact, Jane is so photogenic that a portrait of her won her a screen test. Have you met any of the top-ranking stars yet, Jane? Yes, Joan Crawford. I met her the first day she started work on Daisy Canyon. Oh, that's a picture Joan was keen to play in from the moment she read the book. And she was wonderful in the love scenes with Dana Andrews. Yeah, Joan knows how to get dramatic value out of a scene, too. Like the later scenes in Daisy Canyon, when she's married to Henry Fonda. And she always looks so lovely. 
I was on the set one day when a stand-in was posing in some lovely lingerie similar to Joan's costume. And <laughs> less delicate versions, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, but even these were lovely. I could hardly believe it when the stand-in told me they had already been luxed a number of times, and that Joan's even lovelier things get luxed too. But John Kennedy ought to be interested in that. I am, Jane, but it's not surprising. Leading Hollywood studios specify gentle lux care for everything washable because it's so safe. Well, I've been a Lux fan for years myself. As a matter of fact, Jane, luxed under things stay lovely three times as long. A scientific laboratory took a number of identical slips and nighties and washed them two ways. One set with a strong soap, the others the Lux way. It wasn't long before those washed with strong soap looked faded and drab, but the luxed ones stayed lovely three times as long. Well, that's a big help to any girl's budget. Right. And that means you can have three times as many pretty undies without spending any more. Because instead of just replacing worn-out faded ones, you can buy extra undies and have three times as many. Thank you, Jane Nye, for being here tonight. Back now to our producer, William Keeley. Act three of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, with Charles Boyer as Captain Gregg and Madeline Carroll as Lucy. The coming of Miles Fairley into the life of Lucy Muir has marked the passing of the ghost of Captain Gregg. But Lucy scarcely noticed his disappearance in her love for her handsome suitor and the excitement over the success of a book called Blood and Swash. Imagine it, Martha, a check for 200 pounds from Mr. Sproul. Another 200 pounds for that awful book? Lummy, Mum, such language. And Mr. Sproul wants me to go to London immediately. Some more papers to sign. Then off to town you go, Mum. Don't you worry about Anne and me. But I can't possibly go to London. Mr. Fairley's coming. We're having a picnic. You mean he is. I heard you, Martha. Please remember that I'm going to marry him. Yes, Mum. By the way, I... I've been thinking... We might put that portrait of Captain Gregg up in the attic. Don't you like it anymore? Oh, it was so silly of me to hang it here in my bedroom. I, I don't know what possessed me. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I most forgot. Here, boy brought this note for you from the village. Oh? From the bank, is it, ma'am? No, no, it's from Mr. Fairley. Oh, oh, how dreadful. He's been called up to London for a few days. But it's not dreadful at all. I'll go to London, too. I'll see Mr. Sproul as he wishes, and I'll see Miles. I'll surprise him, Martha. Quickly now, fetch Anna. I must say goodbye to her. Yes, ma'am? I'd like to see Mr. Fairley, please. I'm Mrs. Muir. Thank you, ma'am. If you'll wait in there, please. Who's that, Hilda? I'm Mrs. Muir, ma'am. Oh? Perhaps I can help you, Mrs. Muir. Did I hear you say you wanted to see my husband? Husband? If you don't mind waiting, he'll be back soon. I see. Won't you sit down? No, I, I'd better go. I, I'm afraid I made a mistake. Mistake, Mrs. Muir? Yes, I'm very sorry. I think I understand, my dear. I'm sorry, too. Truly, I am. You see, it isn't the first time something like this has happened. <laughs> Now, Mum, you've all but cried your eyes out. You're home now, where you belong. Oh, Martha, what a fool. What a fool. There, there. He ain't worth it. Blast his eyes, he ain't worth it. Martha, 
Do you know what day this is? Mm, wash day. Yes, but it was exactly a year ago that we came here. Do you remember that afternoon? I went upstairs and I lay down before tea. You're hidden for a cup of tea, Mum. No, Martha. I'm thinking of the dream I had that afternoon a year ago. Such a strange dream. Oh, well. Anna will be coming home from school soon, Mum. Will you be taking her for a walk along the beach? Of course. I wouldn't miss it for the world. My little girl, Martha. She's all my life now. Mm, and most of mine, too. <laughs> soon there'll be no more walks. All too soon. She's growing up. School, then a university. Young men. Marriage. Oh, Martha, it will be on us before we know it. Before we know it. Dear Mother, it's so strange here at the university, so utterly different than Whitecliffe, but I love it, darling. If only I didn't miss you and Martha so much. I count the days. It's incredible, Martha. I just don't believe it. Anna, Anna will be 18 on Friday. Well, come on, we'll walk to the village. We must get her package off to her today. I'll be home on Saturday, Mother. And don't worry, I haven't been thrown out of the university. Just a wonderful opportunity to motor down to see you. And maybe, darling, maybe to surprise you, too. You see, there's a young man on there. Anna, darling. Oh, I'm so glad to see you. <laughs> Did you get my letter, Mother? Yes, dear, but I don't understand. I wish you'd be more specific in your letters. Come I on in, Bill. Well, am I being specific now? Don't be shy, Bill. Here she is, my mother. How do you do? How do you do? His real name is Sir Evelyn Anthony Scathe, and we're thinking of getting engaged. Anna! Believe me, Mrs. Muir, I, I haven't even asked her yet. We've come for your blessing, Mother, and we haven't had tea. Anna, you, you quite take my breath away. Bill, darling, just make yourself at home in there. We'll sing out when we want you. We'll be in the kitchen. Two more for tea, Martha. Anna, Anna. Oh, just look at them. She's home. She's really home. And you'll find a strange man in the living room. I gather his name is Sir Evelyn Skate, and Anna wants to marry him. I met him at a dance, Mother. He's a sub-lieutenant in the Navy. You know my weakness for sailormen. Oh, I've never been so happy in all my life. Then I'm happy too, darling. And I won't waste time now with questions. No, I can't make tea with such distractions going on. Out in the garden now if you want to talk. Both of you. <laughs> Mother, I've discussed it all with Bill. Of course, we won't get married till I'm out of the university, but you ought to come and live with us when we do, you and Martha. No, darling, no. Oh, but you must. You've been alone so much of your life. You're sweet, Anna, and I'm proud of you. But I love this house. I've been very happy here, and I shall live here until I die. With Captain Greg? What did you say? With the ghost of Captain Greg? Anna, what are you talking about? Oh, I knew the captain very well when I was a little girl. First year we lived here. We used to have the most wonderful talks. You didn't. Oh, it was all a game I'd made up, of course, sort of a, a dream game. It was very real while it lasted. And then he stopped coming suddenly. I suppose I was growing too old and sophisticated for him. Oh, but I grieved and grieved. I even... Mother, darling, you look as if you'd seen a... Don't tell me you see him, too. No, Anna. No, not for years. Well, then you did. Mother, you don't suppose he, he really haunted us? No, darling. Things like that can't happen. It, it was only a dream. The same dream for both of us? Perhaps I set you off by telling you about my dreams. Little girls are very impressionable. Oh, I don't remember your telling me. 
Oh, tell me now. I'd love to hear about them. But I can't remember them very well. Just bits and pieces, a, a phrase here and there, a look. I think I dreamed most of that book I wrote. I must have. I never could have thought of it. All these years I've tried to remember, but, but I can't. Do you know what I think? I think you fell in love with him, too. I did nothing of the sort. Oh, I wouldn't blame you if you had. When did you stop seeing him? After about a year. I dreamed we quarreled. It was about a man. Uncle Neddy. Anna, you knew that Miles Fairley and oh, I were... Oh, I used to pray you wouldn't marry him. And you were so right. I saw him five years ago at a dinner party, bald and fat and drinking too much. And he cried. It seems his wife finally had enough and left him. And to think I wanted to spend the rest of my life with him. Perhaps he did exist, Mother, Captain Gregg. Perhaps he did come back and talk to us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if he had? Then you'd have something, you know what I mean, to look back on. Happiness. No, darling. We just made him up, you and I. He never existed. I just wasn't intended to have that kind of happiness. And I haven't missed it, really, I haven't. Oh, I've been lonely at times, but there have been compensations. You, and now Bill, and dear Martha, and this house, the sea and the gulls, and memories. I've had those, you know, even if it was a dream. Now come along. We'll join your young man for tea. If she thinks it was a dream, I cannot blame her. It was all my own doing. I told her it was a dream. Ah, how long ago this occurred. Even Anna is older now than Lucia was when she first stepped into this house. Anna, long since married, children of her own grown children. And Lucia, white and withered and full of years. Ah, oh, blast it all. When I decided to be noble, I never thought she'd live to be 80. Lucia! Lucia! What are you doing out on that balcony? Don't you know what the night air does to you? I'm coming, Martha. I'm coming. What were you doing out there? I don't know. What difference does it make? Mm, I hope you remember what the doctor told you. That I'm an old woman. Well, so is he. There was a letter this afternoon from Anna. Little Lucy's engaged. <laughs> Little Lucy? To the captain of a transatlantic airplane. Anna's very happy about it. Says it must run in the family. Airplanes? I suppose she means captains. Here, you drink your hot milk. I'm too tired. I... And I have a funny pain in my arm. No wonder standing out there in that fog. Sit down now and drink it while it's hot. I don't want any hot milk. Now, now, don't get into a state. I am not in a state. I... I just want to be left alone. Bossing me around all the time. Well, I'll leave it on the table. Take it or not, I don't care. Bossing me. I'm tired. Milk. All right, I'll drink it. I... Oh. Martha! Martha! I feel so... Oh, 
Lucia, at last. You'll never be tired again, Lucia, or old again. Look at you, radiant, like the day you came here. Come, Lucia. Come, my dear. Our stars will return for their curtain calls in a moment. Say, Libby, I, uh, I have a riddle for you. I'm listening. When are a cook's hands like a rose garden? <laughs> I can see you're dying to tell me. Well, they're in flower. <laughs> <laughs> but when a housewife's hands are the color of a red, red rose, she doesn't like it a bit. It means she has a bad case of dishpan hands. But she can do something about that. Just change from strong soaps to Lux Flakes for dishwashing. Changing to Lux takes away that red look. Makes hands soft and smooth again. Smooth as white rose petals, the way her hands used to be. And the way husbands still prefer them. Lux Flakes almost make dishwashing a pleasure. The suds feel so soothing and rich. And they certainly get the dishes clean fast. Lux is a real time saver. It rinses so perfectly you don't need to dry the dishes. Just rinse them with hot water and let them drain. They dry without streaking. And don't forget, Lux is as easy on the pocketbook as it is on hands. Tests show Lux suds are so much richer, you can wash up to twice as many dishes with Lux as you can with the same weight of ten other leading dishwashing soaps. Lux is thrifty. Back now Here's Mr. Keeley at the microphone. brought the ghost and Mrs. Muir so vividly and happily to life. Charles Boyer and Madeline Carroll. Madeline, you don't know how happy we are to welcome you on this stage again and how proud we are of your war record overseas. Well, Bill, you can't imagine how happy I am to be back and to be teamed for the first time on Lux with Charles Boyer. The feeling is mutual, believe me, Madeleine. But I understand that in addition to all your other work overseas, you had your own uh, radio show in Paris. That's right, Charles, for about a year after VE Day. We broadcast once a week in French, to tell the French about America and Americans. Well, everything I've heard from France these past few years has been about the wonderful job you did for French-American relations. And you haven't done such a bad job either, Charles. Right, Bill. Almost everything I heard in Paris concerning Hollywood was about Charles Boyer's French Research Foundation and what it was doing to create a better understanding and appreciation of France. Well, well thank you, Madeleine. But coming back to this theater, Bill, I'm sure your audience is keen to hear about the show for next week. And I'm sure they'll be keen about the show itself. It's Universal International's quite recent screen hit, Ride the Pink Horse, with its three fine stars, Robert Montgomery, Wanda Hendricks, and Thomas Gomez. That's the picture that Bob himself directed, isn't it, Bill? Yes, and it's a truly thrilling screenplay drama, a story of mystery and adventure that should keep our audience guessing breathlessly what's coming next, and usually, I'll wager, guessing wrong. Sounds like a real hit, Bill. We'll be listening in my house. Bonsoir. Good night. Bonsoir et merci bien. <laughs> Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Flakes, join me in inviting you to be with us again next Monday evening when the Lux Radio Theater presents Robert Montgomery, Wanda Hendricks, and Thomas Gomez in Ride the Pink Horse. 
This is William Keeley saying good night to you from Hollywood. Charles Boyer will soon be seen in the Enterprise production, Arch of Triumph. Our music was directed by Louis Silvers. And this is your announcer, John Milton Kennedy, reminding you to join us again next Monday night to hear Ride the Pink Horse with Robert Montgomery, Wanda Hendricks, and Thomas Gomez. Absident won by three to one. Yes, by an overwhelming average of three to one, families throughout America who compared toothpastes they were using at home preferred new Pepsodent with Irium over any other brand they tried. They said new Pepsodent toothpaste tastes better, makes breath cleaner, makes teeth brighter. Yes, with families who made comparison tests, Pepsodent won by three to one. Be sure to listen next Monday night to the Lux Radio Theater presentation of Ride the Pink Horse with Robert Montgomery, Wanda Hendricks, and Thomas Gomez. Stay tuned for My Friend Irma, which follows immediately over most of these stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Hi there, this is Bill Bragg, the man with a million friends. And you're listening to The Glowing Dial with my good friends Big John and Steve right here, right now on Yesterday USA. And we're back with you here on The Glowing Dial here on Yesterday USA Radio. I'm Big John, that is Steve, and uh, we just heard an episode of the Lux Radio Theater that was The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Uh, one of my favorite films, actually. Too. I remember the TV show from that, too. Yeah, uh-huh. It's from Monday, December 1st, 1947, originally over CBS. And we hope you enjoyed that. We have a couple more programs we're going to bring you here in this edition of The Glowing Dial on Yesterday USA Radio Superstation. Well, I have to take a breath after that. It's going to be an episode of the Screen Director's Playhouse. It's called It's in the Bag. It's from uh, Friday... February 17th, 1950, originally over NBC, is sponsored by RCA. And it's featuring Fred Allen, oh, Jack Benny's nemesis, Lorene Tuttle, Frank Nelson, yeah. Hans Conried, and Richard Wallace is uh, the director. That's uh, our cast. Steve, you have a little bit of information for us on I sure do. Screen let me, Directors Playhouse. Let me Playhouse. tell the folks about the Screen Directors Playhouse. Please it ran. Do. On NBC from 1949 to 1951, originally it was a 30-minute show, but expanded to one hour in 1950, and like the Lux Radio Theater, Screen Director's Playhouse presented abridged adaptations of famous Hollywood films of the day. Sponsors over the run included RCA Victor, Anison, and Chesterfield Cigarettes. A few of our favorites are The Spiral Staircase with Dorothy McGuire and The Uninvited with Ray Milland. All right, yeah, that's it. Uh, we just don't have time to go into more detail about uh, the show's uh, backgrounds like we do on our podcast. We have uh, much more lengthy uh, uh, background information, but we're on a time limit here. we got to allow those five minutes at the end of the show so Kimmy can do uh, station news and updates and things like that and ask you for donations, which we are going to be asking you for, too, But right now. I think we need to get into this program. So, Steve, that means reaching for the I McGee am machine. in position here. They're Let's try there. this to bring in the Screen Director's Playhouse. All right. All right. Uh, it's working. It's working. Real good. Okay, folks, sit back. Close your eyes and remember, Screen Director's Playhouse, it's in the bag. 
from Friday, February 17, 1950, originally over NBC. RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, first in television, proudly presents... Screen Directors Playhouse, star Fred Allen, production It's in the Bag, director Richard Wallace... Hollywood Screen Directors present a play on mirth and murder. Tonight, for the first time on the air, the motion picture comedy, It's in the Bag, starring Fred Allen in his original role of Fred Flugel. At this point, ladies and gentlemen, the star usually tells the story of his life. Well, the story of my life can be told very briefly. I was born, obviously. I lived, and I'm here tonight. Our story tonight can also be told very briefly. It's in the bag is a murder mystery, and the name of the killer is Monty the Goner. Well, that's, that's all there is to the story. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and good night. Good night. Oh, no. Thank you very much. Hey, M- Mr. Allen, Mr. Allen. Monty the Goner, what, uh, what's on your mind? Is she going to let me kill nobody? Well, not, no, not tonight, Monty. Hey, you can't get away with this, Alan. I got a contract with Murder Incorporated. Really? If I don't kill somebody in this program, the union will pull out every murder show on the network. Well, gee, I didn't know you were organized that well, Monty. We don't want any trouble. No picketing. All right, we'll go ahead with the program. Jimmy Wallington, will you set the scene, please? All right, Fred. Ladies and gentlemen... It's in the bag is the story of Fred Flugel, a flea trainer who lived a simple life with his wife, his son, and his fleas. As our story opens, we find our hero in front of his combination flea circus at home, going about his business. Hurry, 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 folks. See the greatest flea circus of all time. See Sandow, the mighty strongman flea. See Rockefeller, the richest flea in the world. Rockefeller saved his money and retired and bought himself his own dog. Now, just a minute. Just a minute, Junior. Where's your ticket? What ticket, Pop? I'm your son, Homer. Oh, I thought you were one of the fleas with a hat on. Excuse me, son. (laughs) Say, what have you got in that bag? Nothing, Pop. Let me see. Why, you little saboteur, your father's a flea trainer, and you're coming home with a jar of insecticide. Oh, Ma, help! Fred, I sent Homer for that insecticide. Tell him, Ma. My mother warned me not to marry a flea trainer. A flea trainer. I won't always be a flea trainer. There are millionaires in my family. One moth-eaten millionaire. Homer, don't talk that way about my uncle. One of these days, my Uncle Trumbull may make out his will in my favor and drop dead. That's what I say, Flugel. Drop dead. (laughs) Mom, he's a goner. Fred Flugel, have you been playing the horses again? Eve... Just because my bookmaker is here with a blackjack in one hand and an open razor in the other hand, does that mean I'm playing the horses? How much do you owe him? Uh, eight bucks. Now, don't worry, Mrs. Flugel. Oh, I'm not worrying. If Pop don't pay you money, can I watch you break his ribs? Eh, 
Who needs his ribs? I need them. How will I look walking around in my bare lungs? <laughs> Flugel, from now on, you have got unlimited credit with me. Just look at this story in tonight's paper. Is this the paper? Let me see. Millionaire dies of acute indigestion. Trumbull Flugel leaves nephew Fred Flugel $12 million. $12 million? <gasps> no more fleas. We can live in luxury. Luxury is right. From now on, we'll all wear underwear. <laughs> Gentlemen, gentlemen, please, one at a time. Mr. Flugel, you've ordered a 20-room mansion for your wife. I know. You ordered a rhinestone Cadillac for yourself. Yeah. How about something for your little boy? Have you got a nice, sharp bear trap? <laughs> well, I got one with four prongs. I'll take it. Oh, excuse me, gentlemen. This may be my bookmaker. Hello? Yes, Monty? I'm betting 500 on Flying Max across the board at Belmont. No, I know. I, yes, I know. That's 10,000 I owe you. Uh, my uncle's money? Well, no, I haven't got it yet. But this afternoon, I'm seeing my uncle's lawyer, Mr. Jefferson T. Pike. Please be seated, Mr. Flugel. Well, thank you, Mr. Pike. As your late uncle's lawyer, I'm sorry to inform you that there has been an unexpected development. Unexpected development? I'm still heir to my uncle's estate, sir. Oh, oh yes, yes, indeed. But I'm afraid, Mr. Flugel, that the estate isn't quite the $12 million the paper said it was. Well, what did my uncle leave me? Four antique chairs. Four antique chairs? Mr. Pike, what happened to that $12 million? Your uncle had an unfortunate vice. What was it? He played pinball machines. Well, how could my uncle lose $12 million playing pinball machines? He tilted. Uh... Eve, Eve, where's that can of insecticide? I'm going to end it all. Oh, cheer up, Fred. It could be worse. Worse? How could it be worse? I lost $12 million. I owe for a mansion, a rhinestone Cadillac that I can't pay for, Flying Max ran last at Belmont. And I got my hand caught in a bear trap. Who is it? The expressman. I got four chairs here for Mr. Flugel. Take them away. Feed them to the termites. But Pop, those chairs are Louis Fourteenth. Tell Louie to come and get them out of here. Look, maybe, maybe I can raise some money on them, Pop. How, Homer? Finley's auction parlor sells antiques like these for 50 bucks. Hey, four chairs, 50 bucks, that's $200. Homer, get down to Finley's with those chairs. Okay, Pop. $200. Eve, where's my racing for? Fred, are you crazy? You owe Monty the gun of $10,000 now. Where's... Come in. Fred Flogel. Yes? I'm Public Eye Perkins. You're a policeman? Yeah. Fred Flugel, you're suspected of murder. Who's murder? Trumbull Flugel. He was your uncle. I know he was my uncle, but he died of indigestion. Something he ate. What he ate was insecticide. Insecticide? Your uncle was poisoned. That's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Why would Fred kill his own uncle? Who was left $12 million in his uncle's will? Fred Flugel. $12 million? All I got was four chairs. Four chairs, eh? Flugel, before Public Eye Perkins is through with you, you won't need no chairs. No? You'll need a hammock. A hammock? Flugel, you're gonna swing. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> trying to make me a murder suspect? Well, what are you worried about? They're trying to make me a widow. Yes? Fred Flugel? Yes? I'm from the last National Bank. 
The last national bank? Your Uncle Trouble left this package to be delivered to you after his death. Side here. There you are. Thank you. Fred, from the bank. It must be money. Money, money, Eve. I'll tear it open. Well, I'll be... Look at this. A phonograph record. Some estate. Four chairs and a phonograph record. A phonograph. Well, we might as well play it. With my luck, it'll probably be Margaret Truman singing Mule Train. Here, put the record on the machine. All right. I'll get the needle down here. Dear nephew, this is your Uncle Tremble. My Uncle Trumbull? Yes, I'm speaking to you from the grave. But, Uncle... Quiet, please, I'm talking. <laughs> yes, sir. If I died under suspicious circumstances, you must bring my murderer to justice. Yes, sir. The evidence has been concealed along with $300,000. Where? It is in one of the four chairs I left you in my will. Avenge me, my boy. Goodbye. Goodbye, Goodbye, Uncle, Uncle Trumbull. Eve, $300,000. It's in the chairs. Where are the chairs? What happened to those chairs? Congratulate me, Pop. I sold them. You sold what? The chairs. Finley auctioned them off. So, my own son steals four chairs and sells them to a crooked antique dealer. Who bought them? Who bought those chairs? What's all the excitement? Excitement? I haven't got a cent to my name. I owe Monty the gun of $10,000, and I'm accused of murder. The only thing that can save me is the $300,000 and the evidence in one of those chairs. Homer, do you realize what will happen to your father? Yes, Homer. If I don't get the right chair... You'll get the electric chair. listening to the Screen Directors Playhouse production of It's in the Bag, starring Fred Allen and presented by RCA Victor. I'll tell you something else that's in the bag. That quality television set you've been wishing you could afford. When you see the amazingly low price tags on RCA Victor's 14 brand new 1950 television models, you'll realize that money need no longer stand between you and your true love. Let's say you have roughly what two or three years ago would have bought only a 10-inch open-face console. Today it can buy one of the most beautiful 16-inch consoles ever created, the TC-168. This console has a cabinet of exquisite provincial design with paneled cathedral doors. In appearance, it's like a masterpiece out of the 18th century. And in performance, it's like a masterpiece out of the 21st century. For the pictures you see on its wide 16-inch screen seem to have leaped half a century in brightness and clarity. This beautiful console is typical of the 14 new televisions of delight waiting for you right now at your RCA Victor dealers. Now back to the Screen Director's Playhouse production of It's in the Bag, starring Fred Allen in his original role of Fred Flugel. Trouble still pursues Fred Flugel, ex-flea trainer, ex-millionaire. Accused of his uncle's murder, penniless, in debt to a heartless bookmaker, Flugel has summoned his late uncle's lawyer, Jefferson T. Pike, to his home. Have you any other suggestions, Mr. Pike? Well, Mr. Pike? 
If I were in your boots, I'd confess. Confess what? I'm not guilty. Oh, 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 not guilty. <laughs> How many times have I heard my clients say that, even as I was helping the wardens trap them in the electric chair? <laughs> but surely, Mr. Pike, you don't think my husband is guilty. Until I get my retainer, madam, every client is guilty. <laughs> Mr. Pike... You'll get your retainer. As soon as Finley's auction parlor finds those four chairs, I'll have the evidence and $300,000. $300,000? I'll start preparing your defense immediately. Are you going back to the office? No, I'm going down to Finley's auction parlor. Well, happy mandamus. Some lawyer. When he gets through with this case, one of the chairs will go to the chair. <laughs> Come in. Hello, Flugel. Monty the Goniff again. Flugel? There is a difference between you and me. What's the difference, Monty? Ten thousand dollars. Now, look, look, Monty. You and that phony newspaper story, your uncle dying, leaving you twelve million dollars. But, Monty... If I don't get my money by six o'clock tonight, there's going to be another difference between you and me. What difference? I'm going to be living. <laughs> Monty, you'll get your money. I'll have $300,000. $300,000? When? As soon as I find that chair. I'm waiting to hear from Finley's auction parlor now. Okay, Flugel. Give me a ring. Where will you be? At Finley's auction parlor. Eve, I've got to get that money before 6 o'clock. I wonder what's keeping Homer. Come in. Public Eye Perkins. Just checking up, Flugel. I never lose sight of a murder suspect. But Fred didn't commit the murder. No. Oh, no. His uncle didn't die from playing leapfrog. Uh, look, Perkins, I can prove that I'm innocent. Oh. As soon as I find the evidence. And where's the evidence? It's in one of the chairs with $300,000. $300,000? We're waiting to hear from Finley's auction parlor now. Okay, Flugel. I'm closing in. On the murderer? No, on Finley's auction parlor. <laughs> Dad, finding that chair is going to be like looking for a lost tooth at an Elks convention. Oh, the telephone. Maybe it's good news. I hope so. Hello? This is Homer, Pop. Eve, it's Homer. What did he find out? Homer, did you find out who bought the chairs? Finding that chair is going to be like looking for a lost tooth at an Elks convention. Homer, we already told that joke. <laughs> you weren't here. Oh, well, Finley is trying to remember who bought the chairs at the auction. Well, tell Finley to concentrate. Tell Finley to try and remember one at a time. Well, he says some guy came in and bought the first chair for a prize in a radio program. A giveaway program? Yeah, it's called Break the Sponsor. So long, Pop. Nice work, Homer. Eve, one of those chairs is on a quiz show. Where's my hat? Fred, a radio quiz. They'll ask you a million questions. Eve, for $300,000, I've got all the answers. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is Break the Sponsor. And now our next contestant. And what is your name, sir? Fred uh, Flugel, Sr. Uh, what is your occupation, Mr. Flugel? Well, I'm a flea trainer. And how did you become a flea trainer? I started from scratch. <laughs> well, Mr. Flugel, what category have you chosen? Uh, geography, sir. That's very good. Are you ready for the first question? As the flea said when he jumped on the dog, I'll bite... <laughs> Why, Mr. Flugel, you're funnier than Arthur Godfrey. Who isn't? <laughs> All right, Mr. Flugel, here's our first question. Where is the capital of the United States? Most of it is in Europe. <laughs> Congratulations! 
Congratulations, Mr. Flugel. You've won the Jumbo Jackpot oh, Prize. Oh, good for me, sir. <laughs> yes, sirree. And now, sir, you can have your choice of any piece of merchandise on the stage. Well, I'll take that in the corner there, that Louis XIV chair. Uh, wouldn't you rather have this, uh, turtleneck raccoon coat? No, no, I'll, I'd rather have the, the chair. Well, uh, how about a lifetime supply of Venetian blinds? Oh, I wouldn't live long enough to raise them. No, I'd rather have the chair. <laughs> well, uh, how about a two-week trip to Death Valley, complete with pallbearers? No, no. Look, just uh, no other prizes, if you don't mind. Just the jumbo. Leave out the jackpot. All I want is that... Louis XIV's chair. Louis XIV. Mr. Flugel, what do you want with that old chair? I am going to take it apart. How? I am going to hit you over the head with it. Oh! Ow! Dad, there's nothing here. It's the wrong chair. The wrong chair? There's no evidence. No $300,000. $300,000? You hit me on the head to get $300,000? I'm sorry, sir. Sorry! Mr. Flugel, you've just invented radio's newest game. Hit the announcer on the head! Win a case crime! There's millions in it! Oh, millions! <laughs> Well, Homer, I'm certainly glad you called us on the phone. Well, there was nothing in the first chair, huh, Pop? No, it was a waste of time. I won the jumbo jackpot, but I got the chair. There was nothing in it. Did really? you get any more information out of Finley? Yeah. He says he sold the second chair to Dr. Klutz, a psychiatrist. Klutz? How do you spell Klutz? With a small K, do you know? K-L-U-T-Z, I think. Klutz, have you got to give me that psychiatrist address, Homer? Uh, Dr. Klutz, uh, I'm here by appointment, sir. My name is uh, Fred... My name is Fred Flugel. Just lie down on the couch, Mr. Flugel. <laughs> but, doctor, I, I came to see you about a chair. Uh, Mr. Flugel, you come to a psychiatrist, you lie down on the couch. <laughs> Chairs is for midgets. Well, no, no, I'm not a, a midget, as you could see if you had your glasses on. You don't understand, doctor. Doctor, I have a problem. Uh, put it on the couch. <laughs> well, all right. I'll lie down. Just yeah. let me relax a second, doctor. Yeah. Doctor, I am in trouble. You think you got troubles? Get up from the couch. Why? Let me lie down. <laughs> now I will tell you some troubles. All right. Last week, one of my patients, a stock salesman, yes. is saying to me, Dr. Klotz, because that's my name, yes. Dr. Klotz, <laughs> invest all of your money with me. Uh -huh. Together, we will dig an oil well. An oil well? And yeah. you lost everything in the oil well? Today, I don't know my money from a hole in the ground. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. You, you, you want to hear more troubles, Flugel? No, no, Dr. Klotz. All I want to do is examine this Louis XIV chair in the corner here. Dad, it's the wrong chair. There's nothing in it. But you ripped it to pieces. It's all right. Don't lose your head, Doctor. I'll send you a, chair, a check for $25 to have it reupholstered. $25 they get for upholstery? Yes, Doctor. Doctor, where are you going? Goodbye, psychiatry. Hello, upholstery. <laughs> Eve, that psychiatrist was a waste of time. Klutz, remind me not to go to him in the future. All right, now, don't take off your hat. Homer just phoned from the auction parlor. Good. Finley found the third chair? Yes. 
It was sold to a gypsy mind reader named Sarah the Psychic. Some customers go to this auction parlor. Madam, you, you are Sarah the Psychic? Fred Flugel, I could tell you all the secrets of the past, present, and the future. If only... If only what? If only I could remember where I put my crystal ball. Well, look, Sarah the Psychic, uh, maybe you could fake it. I am Sarah the Psychic... I am here. You do not have to tell me why you are here. I can read your mind. Oh, I didn't realize my skull was that thin. <laughs> you came for a chair. Uncanny. Fred Flugel. Yes? Sarah the psychic knows all. The chair is empty. You mean I came here for nothing? Not for nothing, kid. That'll be $15. $15? $5 for reading your mind. And? $10 for reading the chair. What's new, Pop? Homer, there was nothing in the third chair either. Then it must be in the chair the guy just brought back here to Finley's. The fourth chair. Homer, bring that chair home at once. Pop, I haven't got any money. Homer, look. Listen to your father carefully. All right. Here's what you do. Breathe on Finley's glasses. He'll think he's in Los Angeles. <laughs> Grab that chair and run. Pop, the last chair. Ah, and that chair is $300,000 and the evidence against my uncle's killer. Don't touch that chair, Flugel. Pop, it's Monty Vagana. But, Monty, the $10,000 I owe you is in that chair. Flugel, I'm taking all the loot, the whole 300 grand. Stand aside. Don't move, Monty Vagana, I got you covered. Public Eye Perkins, what a capture. Flugel, you're under arrest, too. I'm taking you in for the theft of this chair from Findlay's auction parlor. Drop that gun, Perkins. Fred, it's your uncle's lawyer. Jefferson T. Pike. I'm taking that chair, Flugel, and the money and the evidence. The evidence? Then you, Jefferson T. Pike, you are my uncle's murderer. Well, that's impossible. Why? Because at the beginning of the program, you said the murderer was Monty the Garner. Well, that, Mr. Pike, was to throw you off the track. You murdered Uncle Trumbull because you knew that he knew that you were stealing from his estate. The only proof of that is in the bottom of this chair. Nobody move. I'm going to rip off the lining and then I'll... Oh! Grab his gun, Pop. I've got it, Homer. Now, Mr. Jefferson T. Pike, up with your hand. I can't. Take it off. Take it off. Take what off? He's caught in my bear trap. Homer, you mean? Oh, sure, Pop. I saw all three of these guys snooping around in back of Finley's auction parlor, so when I brought the chair back here, I put the trap in the lining, just in case. Public Eye Perkins, you in person, sir. Take them away. Oh, boy, two of them. My first double dandy capture. <laughs> well, Eve, with Pike and Monty out of the way, there's nothing to prevent us, Homer and all of us, from enjoying Uncle Trumbull's money. Oh, thanks, Pop. Haul it out of the chair. I'm just going to do that this very minute, son. Now, let me see. Why, there's nothing in here but an old envelope. It must be a bank draft. No, it isn't, Eve. It's a letter. Listen, my dear nephew, in my phonograph record, I forgot to say that the $300,000 would not be in cash. It is tied up in a murder story I wrote, which I am sure that you can sell to the movies. The name of my story is It's in the Bag. 
and it starts with a fellow standing in front of a flea circus yelling, Hurry, 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 folks! See the greatest flea circus of all time! Oh, no! We don't have to go through all that again! No, Homer. As one Siamese twin said to the other one as they prepared to sit down, this is the end for both of us. You have just heard the last act of It's in the Bag. Our star, Fred Allen, and our guest screen director, Richard Wallace, will be with us in just a moment. In weeks to come, on Screen Director's Playhouse, you'll be entertained by such other great stars as Bob Hope, Jane Russell, Joseph Cotton, and Kirk Douglas. And next Friday, a brilliant young actress brings a well-remembered performance to Screen Director's Playhouse. Our story for the first time on the air is Incendiary Blonde, and recreating her original role will be Betty Hutton with Screen Director George Marshall. Now, here again is tonight's star, Fred Allen. Well, Fred, you always have your finger on the nation's pulse, so I suppose you know the big news in recorded music, that RCA Victor's new 45 RPM system is sweeping the country, that RCA Victor is making over 65,000 automatic record changers and over two million records every month, and people are still yelling for more. Well, that's just what my RCA Victor dealer in New York tells me, Jimmy. He claims the 45 is a mob collector. Every morning, he just unlocks the door and jumps back out of the way. What do you think accounts for this swing to the 45? Well, I can only tell you what swang me, Jimmy. What is that, friend? The small says a minor executive loop <laughs> pulling some <laughs> The thing that The thing that swung me, Jimmy, <laughs> is the small size of the 45 records, that's what. My big 78 records were driving me out of house and home. I had a stack of records eight feet high in the back of my clothes closet, and whenever I reached for a necktie, I was always running my head through a tune and vice versa. <laughs> yes, you're right, Fred. The 45s are so tiny, you can line up 150 records on one foot of bookshelf. How many do you have? Oh, about three feet and a couple of toes, I'd say, <laughs> offhand. I suppose you judged the musical qualities of the 45 before going in for it so heavily. Yes, I did, uh, indeed, Jimmy. I replied the Jack, or as I prefer to say, the Yasha test of musical quality. The Yasha test? What's that, Fred? Why, Jimmy, it consists of four questions which all real music lovers always ask about any record system. Is Yasha Heifetz on it? Is Yasha Benny not on it? Is Yasha Eigen for it? <laughs> well, the answer to all those questions is Yasha. Really? Seriously, Fred, though. <laughs> I'll be closing the curtains again. <laughs> well, Fred, I was about to mention that the 45 gives you a wealth of music yes. with the finest tone quality ever achieved in recording. Over 2,100 titles by the world's greatest artists and the stars who make the hits. Say, wait a minute. Wasn't there a fourth Yasha question? Yes, Jimmy. Does this system save a man any Yasha? I mean, Jack. Translate. Oh, why, yes, Fred. The 45 is the least expensive automatic record changer ever made. Prices start as low as $12.95 for the record changer, $29.95 for the Victrola 45, and records as low as 46 cents. Friends, there's every reason in the world to visit your RCA Victor dealers and join the swing to the 45. Ladies and gentlemen, many of you have wondered uh, what a screen director really does. Well, when a studio makes a picture like it's in the bag and a star leaves town in a hurry, 
The screen director is the fellow who stays in Hollywood and takes the blame. And just when people are beginning to forget about it, somebody says, folks, I'd like to have you meet the director of It's in the Bag and the creator of such fine films as Shop Worn Angel and Tycoon, Mr. Richard Wallace. Thanks, Fred. You know, I haven't seen you in any other pictures since it's in the bag. Well, Dick, Hollywood had me. Hollywood threw me uh, back to radio. And that's how people started watching television. Fred, I thought you were fine in pictures. Well, those are very kind words, Richard, from a man who's directed over 100 movies. Tell me, uh, confidentially, how did I photograph? Fred, our handsomest leading men have to be especially photographed to find their best camera angles. We never had that trouble with you. You didn't? No matter how we photographed you, uh, it, uh... I know. I was all angles. Well, Dick, next time we make a picture together, you can photograph me with a sack over my head, and we can call it, It's in the Bag Again. Okay, Fred. But next time, I'll leave town. Now, you take the blame. It's a deal. Good night, Dick. Good night, Fred. Good night, everyone. And good night to you, Fred Allen and Richard Wallace. Remember next Friday, Betty Hutton in Incendiary Blonde with screen director George Marshall, brought to you by RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, first in television. It's in the Bag was presented through the courtesy of Skirball Manning, producers of Bride for Sale, starring Claudette Colbert, Robert Young, and George Brent. Richard Wallace's latest production is A Kiss for Callers, starring Shirley Temple. This is Jimmy Wallington speaking and inviting you to listen again next Friday when RCA Victor presents... Screen Director's Playhouse, star Betty Hutton, production Incendiary Blonde, director George Marshall. NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. Hi, this is Leonard Malton, and you're listening to The Glowing Dial with Big John and Steve here on Yesterday USA. And we're back with you, Big John and Steve, here on The Glowing Dial, uh, currently being heard as a fill-in program uh, for Kimmy and everybody over at Yesterday USA Radio, which is a good place to uh, send a donation to. So's The Glowing Dial, by the way. We have a PayPal icon on our homepage at glowingdial.com. But YUSA has uh, uh, donation icons all over their page, too. And uh, we strongly suggest that if you like what you're hearing here, write to us. Our email addresses are right there on glowingdial.com. So let us hear from you. Let us know, are you glad to hear us on YUSA again? Because we're sure glad to be here. So uh, write to us, write to them at YUSA, and send donations to YUSA uh, in, in Bill Bragg's memory, if you would. Because that was his station, his baby. And... Uh, Kimmy made him a promise that she's going to keep it going. So, all right, our last show is an episode of Strange, a little ditty uh, from Walter Gibson. Uh, more on that in a minute. This one's called Greenwood Acres. It's from 1955. I don't have an exact air date. Over uh, ABC and the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. And it was sustained. It's, uh, the episode is featuring Alice Frost and Court Benson. Walter Gibson is our host and our expert. Charles Woods is the announcer. And Steve, you got a little bit of information for us on Strange. Yes, Strange was a 15-minute anthology series from ABC with stories of the supernatural. The narrator was Walter Gibson, who also created The Shadow. A short highlight of the story would play, then the announcer would cut into introduce your narrator, famous author, lecturer, and expert on strange and weird events, Walter Gibson. Gibson would discuss the theme of the story, then it would begin with a full cast, music, and sound effects. When it was finished, Gibson would return and sum everything up. Only nine episodes are known to survive the years. 
Strange was one of the first radio shows in Big John's collection back when it was all fit in a shoebox. Yes, indeed. We had uh, the Ghost Train episode, uh, which we played, and it was really tinny and shrill sounding. I've since gotten a better copy of that. Uh, We have all nine episodes in the Glowing Dial archives right now, and we featured some of them on our podcast. You'll be hearing maybe some of them here, because we're going to be needing to do some 15-minute type programs here. So... Uh, without further ado, let's get into this episode, Steve. Uh, the McGee Machine will... Uh, I feel like something strange is going to happen. Make sure you have the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service selected on the McGee Machine. Uh, yes, that is this button right here, which I must push. Okay, okay all right, now, we got that good. Yes. So let's see uh, if you've, uh, you've I done... I think it's yes. working. It sure is. All right. Folks, sit back, close your eyes, and remember strange... This is Greenwood Acres from 1955, originally over ABC and the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Enjoy. The story you're about to hear is true, but strange. That's him now, isn't it, Laura? That isn't any bird. That's Seth Langley. Now, Uncle Cassius, there's nothing out there except no magnolia trees and birds. All I'm doing out here on the veranda is smelling the night air. Smells that sweet. It's Langley, the renegade, fighting for the north. And you're fixing to elope with him. Uncle Cash, you're just being plain silly. That goes again. I see him under that willow tree. No. Come out, Langley. Come out of there. Uncle Cash, put away their pistols. Uncle All Cash. right, then. Pretend. But try to stop this. ABC Radio Network presents Strange. True stories of the supernatural with your narrator, famous author, lecturer, and expert on strange and weird events, Walter Gibson. Thank you, Charles Woods. The rivers of the Old South are rich with Spanish moss and memories of great days. The plantation houses stand like old ghosts on the river banks. This is the story of a plantation house we shall call Greenwood Acres. In 1952, an army lieutenant named Seth Proctor, while on leave, found himself in a small backwater town in Georgia. He had gone fishing along a wandering stream loaded with water lilies, and when he got back, he told his landlady about it. That's right, Mrs. Daniels. It was big. Biggest place I ever saw. On the bank of the river, Lieutenant, a house? Yeah, one of those plantation houses. (laughs) You're sure this isn't one of your fish stories, you young men all in making up? No, no, no. I didn't even catch any fish. I just snarled my line on those water lilies. Now, there's no house up that back. Oh, but there is. I saw it. Had four columns out in front. Big willow tree right on the bank. You just must be mistaken, Lieutenant. There ain't been any folks there since way back. Oh, oh, wait a minute. 
You must mean Greenwood Acres. What's Greenwood Acres? Old, old plantation. Went to seed more than 50 years ago. Went to seed? Yeah. There was a tragedy sometime around the Civil War. From that time on, it just went downhill. House is nothing but an old ruin now. Oh, no. It must be a different place then. The one I saw was new. The next day, Lieutenant Proctor went out fishing again. And again, he found himself poling through mats of water lilies toward a willow tree that hung over the bank and oak trees festooned with Spanish moss. Through the heavy trees came the perfume of magnolias, and he saw the gleaming white portico of the huge house. Well, that's it. And it is new. My landlady was wrong. Well, these water lilies are thicker than molasses. Can't move through them. Hmm. Sounds like a mockingbird or a catbird. Wait a minute. I used to imitate birds. <clears throat> Let's see. <laughs> That's not bad. <laughs> oh, what? Uh, who's that? Is that you? Who's talking? I, I, I don't see you. Oh, swimming in the water. What are you, a, a mermaid? That yellow hair of yours, I mistook you for a water lily. I wish I could get through to where you are. These water lilies are too thick. Where have we met? Was it at an army post dance? It is you, isn't it? Sure it is. At least it always has been. What I want to know is who you are. Hey, look out. Get back to shore. There's an alligator. Get back to shore. More coffee, Lieutenant? Uh, no, thanks. But there must be another way into that plantation, a road or something. Oh, roads long since overgrown. I tried. After she got back on shore and I couldn't get through the water lilies, I took the rowboat back and tried by land. Nothing. Hmm. You just must have dreamed it all. Don't tell me what I dreamed, Mrs. Daniels. I saw her. She spoke to me. I didn't get a very good look at her. She got out of the water. All that blonde hair. First time I ever heard of a soldier not looking at a pretty girl. Well, she didn't seem to be wearing much. That's the bathing suits they wear these days. It is scandalous. It, it was like a dream. Yes, that's just exactly what it was. The house through the trees, white and shining. The birds singing. And then her. I never saw her before, but how does she know me? She knows you. Well, she called me by name. My first name. Seth. times during the afternoon, Lieutenant Seth Proctor tried to get to Greenwood Acres, but all the roads were obliterated. That evening, he spent an hour at the local library. It was back in 1865 I read the whole story. So that's where you've been, at the library. Yep. Now look, there was a girl named Laura who was in love with a northern soldier named Seth Langley. Mm -hmm. Her uncle Cassius killed Langley. <laughs> Yeah, and Laura pined away and died of a broken heart. Gee, I wish there'd been a picture of her. Did the story in the library say what she looked like? No, it said she was beautiful and she had blonde hair. Oh, like the girl you saw? 
can't be the same girl. Of course it can. Unless you dreamed it like you said. I didn't dream it. She was there. I saw her. She called me by name. And the house was new, shining white and new. Now, where are you going? There's a moon tonight. I'm going back. Why, you can't get in. I've thought of a way. I'll take a canoe instead of a rowboat. A canoe? A canoe won't get tangled up in those water lilies. It'll glide right over them. Lieutenant, if I was you, I'd forget it. Just plain forget it. The story said the bird call was the same. I can do that bird call. Now, Lieutenant, please. Don't you go being foolish. Hmm? What's foolish about it? If everything else is the same, that means her Uncle Cassius might be around, too. With that same gun. What, to, to use on me? Well, your name's Seth, ain't it? You're a soldier like he was. It's not the same. This is 1952. The girl had blonde hair, and the house is new. No, I'm going. Stay on the veranda again, Laura? Seth will come again. He's dead. No, I'll, I'll see him again. He's dead. Dead. Been dead for years. And I'll do it again, I tell you. I'll shoot him again. I will, I tell you. There it is. A willow tree... Looks for the Spanish moss. Well, I can just get to shore now. Made it. The bird called. I better answer. your name? I, I, I don't know your name. Mm, now you're joking. Is it Laura? You have come back, haven't you? I knew you would. Do you know? You're beautiful. Uncle Cash said you were dead. He said he killed you. The most beautiful girl I ever saw. Last time I never hardly got past the veranda before Uncle Cash shot at you. This time we fooled him, didn't we? Oh, say. Laura, Laura, who's that? There, standing over near the house. Near the first. Look out! It's Uncle Cash. Now, you just stay right in that bed, Lieutenant. The doctor said you should rest. My shoulder. Lucky you wasn't killed. Oh, I'll never get over the turn you gave me. Staggering in here, the middle of the night, all bleeding. I'm... I'm all mixed up. Oh, you're mixed up. After the shot, Laura seemed to disappear. I found myself in the canoe. I looked back. I saw the house. But it was old. It didn't look new anymore. It was old. What happened to it? What happened to Laura? Her Uncle Cassius shot you. I know I was shot. The doctor took the bullet out, but the house must be new. And Laura, she must be alive. 
I held her in my arms. She must be alive. Lieutenant, would you like to see the bullet? What? The doctor left it here. Here it is. Right on this plate. Well, let's see it. Well, that's not from any modern gun. That's an old-fashioned bullet. From a pistol. Around the time of the Civil War. Lieutenant Proctor went back when he recovered, but he never again found the house, old or new. But the wound in his shoulder was real, and so was the lead bullet, a bullet that had been fired out of the distant past. A story true but strange. Walter Gibson, your expert on the supernatural. Stories of ghosts, of spirits, werewolves, and voodoo. And each story you hear is true, but strange. Strange with Walter Gibson as your expert was directed by Clark Andrews. In the cast were Alice Frost and Court Benson. This is Charles Woodspeak. Top of the morning to you. This is Arthur Anderson. But let's pretend I'm lucky the leprechaun. You're listening to The Glowin' Dial here in Yesterday, USA. Oh, you like The Glowin' Dial. For us, said Arthur Anderson, it's magically nostalgic. That doesn't quite scan, does it? But you know what I mean. Big John and Steve, and we are back with you once again. This is The Glowing Dial, a fill-in episode uh, we are doing for Yesterday, USA Radio Superstation. And boy, is it good to be back on YUSA again. Please, write to us, folks, and... Uh, let us know uh, uh, what you think. If you're, you're glad to hear us back on the station, we're anxious to hear from some of the people that we used to know uh, back 18 years ago or more on YUSA. I, uh, sad to say, I don't know if some of them are still with us even anymore. But uh, um, if you're out there and you're listening, drop Big John and Steve a line. Our emails are on glowingdial.com, the homepage right there. So check that out, and also check out YesterdayUSA.com, which you're at because you're listening to this program. But uh, YUSA can use your donations as little or as much as you can send, maybe uh, so much per month. You can get an automatic subscription going through PayPal. Uh, we recommend you do that, and uh, Kim has requested that uh, in Bill's memory as uh, instead of flowers or gifts or anything like that, donate to Bill's station. And that, that's the best way to remember and pay tribute to Bill. So, Bill Bragg, we miss you, my friend. We really do. Uh, but we still love you. And we always will. Always be grateful to you. Anyway, that's done. I think uh, the ghost of Paul Whiteman is in the background waiting to... Uh, yeah, you want, you want to hit that, Paul? All right, that's good. All right, we don't have time to say... Everything I want to say at the close of a show. Except this is Big John and Steve saying, keep a positive thought, keep looking up, think big, keep watching the skies, and we will see, see you on, on the, the glowing dial, dial right here on Yesterday USA. Right. Bye bye.
salvation. Listen, if you dare, for you will hear Mr. Watts' awakening, an account of an amazing incident in the life of one of the world's greatest inventors. And what day will he die? The story of the strangest instrument of death ever created. A story incredible but true. Hello, I am Dean Schaefer, creator and producer of the Incredible But True radio series. Throughout the many years that we have been on the air with our show, I have received thousands of letters from listeners requesting copies of those stories which they enjoyed most. This album is a result of those many requests. It is a collection of the stories most popular from Incredible But True. The spot where the O'Rourke family had lived for almost a hundred years was known as Island McGee. The long, narrow, hilly road that stretched between high thorn hedges to the nearby town bore the name of Nohead Lonin. Each Monday morning, it was Kathleen O'Rourke's custom to walk down the Lonin to the village post office. Since she started out at an early hour, the road was usually deserted. But on a certain morning in June, as she passed the cottage of her neighbor Molly Donovan, she saw Molly standing at the gate, beckoning to her. Kathleen! You wouldn't be going for the post now, would you, darling? That I would, Molly. And could you be doing a great favor for me while you're there now? It's my brother, Patrick. Three months he's gone now, Kathleen, and not a word has he written me. And I'm that worried about him. So you'd be wanting me to inquire at the post office if there's a letter waiting for you? That's it. If it's not too much to be asking you. Tis nothing at all, Molly. Wait right here. I'll be back... And Kathleen O'Rourke continued along the road. At the post office, she collected her family's mail... But the postmaster shook his head and said there was nothing for the Donovan household. And so Kathleen turned back toward home. And it was then, just after she'd passed the outskirts of the village and started up the Noed Lonin, it was then that she saw the man. He was tall. She had a feeling that he was handsome. A few moments later, she stood at Molly Donovan's gate. No word from the brother. No word and nothing at all. Oh, heaven help him. Now I am worried for sure. But Kathleen O'Rourke did not stay to reassure her neighbor. She sped quickly on toward home. And only when she reached the top of the hill did she stop to look behind her. Well, now, what do you know? I thought the lad was a stranger in these parts. But there he is, standing at the gate, talking to Molly Donovan. It was not until the following Monday... When she passed by the Donovan cottage again, that she had a chance to ask Molly a few questions. Who was he now, Molly? The lad that was walking right behind me last Monday morning. I saw no lad, Catherine. How can you say that, Molly? You know yourself he stopped to talk to you? It's mistaken, ye are, lass. No one said a word to me that morning, besides yourself. But I saw him with my own eyes. He was standing here at this gate... If this is some joke you're playing, darling, you're picking a poor time for it. Sure, and my heart's too heavy even for that. Tis my brother, Padre. We heard last night. He's gone, darling. Washed overboard. Lost at sea. It happened early last Monday morning. He must have died just when you were running up no headlong. Yes, Molly Donovan's brother died at the very moment the strange young man appeared on the road behind Kathleen O'Rourke. 
Though Kathleen saw that man following after her, saw him stop at the gate and talk to Molly, Molly herself was unaware of his presence. This is only one of many such stories out of the country of error. A story incredible but true. If you want incredibly fast relief from the pain of headaches, neuritis, or neuralgia, try Anison. Anison is like a doctor's prescription. That is, it contains not just one, but a combination of medically proven active ingredients that give effective relief. If you've not been introduced to Anison by your own physician or dentist, let me urge you to try it yourself. You can get Anison tablets at any drug counter. For most effective relief, use only as directed. I'll repeat the name for you. Anison, A-N-A-C-I-N. Yesterday, USA, Superstation. <laughs> 